Jesus. Welcome. If you're new here, I'm Josh. I'm the lead pastor. Glad that you're here. Uh, we are studying the book of Acts. Cameron uh, took you through Acts chapter 6, verses 1, uh, 1 through 7 last week, looking at the uh, kind of the church beginning to expand its leadership. The apostles recognizing that they could not do everything on their own, uh, recognizing that God has filled this community with the Spirit, and the call for the community to identify seven leaders that were Spirit-filled and filled with wisdom. Uh, And now we're going to move toward two particular leaders that we get to know by name, Stephen and Philip, over the next few weeks. And they really become a bridge, if you will, between, uh, between Peter and the apostles and the rise of the apostle Paul. Uh, in fact, uh, Saul of Tarsus, which is what he, who he is known as before he became Paul, uh, was actually at uh, the trial um, of Stephen, where Stephen gives his long, elaborate sermon and then is stoned to death. Uh, they said that Saul held the coats of the leaders who threw the stones uh, so, and approved of that, of that death. So what we're going to be looking at today is just a small... Uh, a small batch of verses, verses 8 through 15, and it really sets up uh, the sermon that Stephen gives uh, that we will consider next week in its entirety. I think it's important to look at that sermon as a whole. So today we're going to be really looking at um, a particular characteristic of Stephen that I think is really unique and why it was that he was selected uh, by the community of faith to be one who uh, was to be a chief servant uh, to serve the, the broken, the hurting within the community. But what we see is that he goes far beyond serving tables and ends up being a man who himself is powerful in the proclamation of the gospel, uh, whose life is marked by signs and wonders. What's fascinating is he couldn't have been a believer for very long, uh, and his life is snuffed out uh, very quickly uh, because of how evident Christ's life was within him. Uh, And so what I want us to consider today is this word, this Greek word, um, pleres, uh, which means full, which means full. And that word full in the Greek is a quantity of space completely occupied by something. Or another way that you can define that word in the Greek is it means complete. You remember last week, Cameron took you through the verse, Acts chapter 6, verse 5, and it says, and what they said pleased the whole gathering... And they chose Stephen, they name him, a man, and here's that word, pleres, full of faith and of the Holy Spirit. He was both full of faith and full of the Holy Spirit. And what I want us to be thinking about today, because what I said as we explore the book of Acts, is that I want us to be considering what it means to be a spirit-filled community. And when we think of a quantity of space completely occupied by something, that gives us an incredible uh, visual, a picture, if you will, uh, for us to consider what it means to be spirit-filled or really to be filled with anything. What this is talking about is what dominates the personality, what takes over control of how it is that we live and what it is that we think. What we live in is a society uh, that is not marked by a people that are full of faith and full of the Holy Spirit, but we are marked by a people that are full of, it's what our society loves to use, he or she, they're really full of them, what? Selves. That's like this big insult, uh, but it's actually a societal norm. 
All of us, including myself, fall into the trappings of making ourselves the most important thing in our existence. David Foster Wallace, I'm reading his final novel that he wrote um, that he didn't finish uh, a, before he committed suicide called The, the Pale King. And it's an, a further exploration of his genius at looking at what he called the solipsism of American society, this idea that we are totally alone in our own existence. We desperately want to be connected to others, but do not know how to do it. Uh, and the whole book, it's fascinating. You guys want a great read, Pale King, 700 pages on the IRS and boredom. It's, it's so good, too. I really am not joking. Uh, <laughs> and only Wallace could make that theme interesting. But it is an ex- exploration of this anxiety of existence when we put ourselves at the center of our existence and how dysfunctional we become. And what I want us to see as we look at, the pers- at Stephen is Stephen becomes really the poster child of what the spirit-filled life should look like. In fact, there are many parallels to Stephen uh, in his arrest and stoning uh, to that of Jesus in his arrest uh, and crucifixion. And there is a reason for this is that, remember what I said in the beginning, that Acts is not a book of the, of the Acts of the Apostles, but it's a continuation of the Acts of Jesus through the apostles and the church by the power of the Holy Spirit. And so Stephen gives us a picture of what the Spirit-filled life looks like. And this is the thing that I want you to be thinking about because Stephen is spirit-filled. He was filled, full of faith. That word faith, what is faith? A disposition toward God that allows God, the ability to be God in and through our lives. Essentially, implicit trust. An absolute trust that allows God to do something in and through us. And that fullness of faith leads to a fullness of Holy Spirit. Trust and fullness of the Holy Spirit is obedience to the one whom you placed your trust. And so to be spirit-filled is to be obedient to the one in whom you believe. To be spirit-filled is to be yielded to the Spirit's guidance, to his dominance over our lives. And what we see with Stephen is that he is implicitly trusting King Jesus, which empowers him to live by the Spirit to do the work of Jesus. And he is killed for that work. He experiences opposition and is ultimately put to death. And this is the question that I would ask you. What would you rather live? A long life of dull self-preservation or a short life of blessing? Oswald Chambers said, a servant of Jesus Christ is one who is willing to go to martyrdom for the reality of the gospel of God. You think of the great men and women throughout church history who have laid down their lives for their love of Jesus and that love of Jesus being manifested in their witness to his gospel. I think of of men like Dietrich Bonhoeffer who died at 39 years old as he stood in direct opposition to the Nazi regime uh, as a theologian and a great thinker taken so young, so passionate, so genius. I mean, if you've ever read Cost of Discipleship, it is the book on discipleship. Uh, His book, Ethics, is an incredible look at the ethics of the kingdom. I mean, he was so brilliant and yet so practical in his absolute commitment to live out the gospel in the context of this fallen world. And that passion, that zeal, that spirit-filled reality cost him his life. I look at Jim Elliott, who was 28 years old when he was killed uh, on the mission field by the very tribe he was trying to reach. 
And Eliot wrote in his own journal a few years before he died at the end of a spear. He also, did you know that, I thought he went to this high school, but he actually went to Benson High School. Did you know that? Jim Elliot went to Benson. Uh, he is no fool who parts with that which he cannot keep. Don't, don't be a fool and try to preserve your life. Don't be a person who is full of yourself, fluctuating between despair and pride. But he is no fool who parts with that which he cannot keep, lays down their life, when he is sure to be recompensed with that which he cannot lose. It's a powerful statement. And I think this is important for us to understand, is that being spirit-filled is not for the weak of heart. Being spirit-filled is going to push you into a world that you will be faced with hostility. But that hostility is worth it because we are called to be vehicles by which Christ is fulfilling his rescue mission. We are the vessels by which he does it. And the very people that we are trying to rescue from the depths of their brokenness and sin and hurt are the very people that might take your life because they cannot handle the light. And I think that this is the reality is most of us are not going to face martyrdom, losing our physical lives, but we are going to face opposition. And that opposition is more than many people can stomach. And I think that I, I was realizing this when I went and preached at skate church to a bunch of high school kids uh, three weeks ago. And I was like, they're just kids. They're just high school kids. I'm 44. That doesn't bother me. And I showed up and the, I walked up in front and this kid started laughing at me. And I was immediately like, whew, that hurt a little bit. <laughs> and then I was like, uh, and as I was, as I was saying, and I got all tongue tied and I'm like, oh my gosh. It really does matter what they think of me. <laughs> this is horrible. They were so stoned. I was getting stoned just being by them. Uh, it was like, and I was just like, this is horrible. How is this affecting me? Uh, and I just realized that we are so full of ourselves. And the power of the Holy Spirit is when we release self-preservation that we might bring glory to King Jesus. That's the beauty of the gospel. So what I want us to see is what does this look like to be full of faith and full of the Holy Spirit? And I think that there is, in considering this word fullness, this word pleres, what does it mean to be complete? Look what it says about Stephen in verse 8. It says, and Stephen, its very name means victory, full of grace and power, was doing great wonders and signs among the people. One of the things I love about this story is that we are not told when he was selected that he was a miracle worker or a preacher. In fact, the very thing that he was selected to do was to serve the people so that the apostles could be the ones to study the word and to pray and to be the communicators of the gospel, to continue to, to, to be the key leadership of the church. Uh, but the church didn't really have any formal structure at this point. And Stephen, along with six others, were picked because of their, their natural servanthood the way that they poured themselves out for the good of the community. And I believe that that yieldedness to be other-oriented led to the Spirit having the freedom to empower him to do things beyond what he could have even imagined for himself. I always think about that. I didn't get saved and become a preacher. In fact, I never wanted to be a preacher, and I would have laughed had someone told me that. I didn't even get saved and become a worship leader, even though my background was music. What I, I got saved unto is a small community uh, that had different needs. And I remember when they first asked me to consider leading worship, I was afraid of it because I hated it and still struggle 
uh, with much of it. Uh, and I was like, I don't want to lead those songs. I don't even understand those songs. And they're like, would you please consider serving in this capacity? I said, no, I don't want to do that. And they're like, well, would you lead worship at the prayer service in the morning before the service, which was me and four other people. And I did that for six months faithfully before they finally convinced me to lead worship on a Sunday. And then, to, then once again, stepping out in faith, trusting the Holy Spirit to lead me, I wrote eight new songs for the church the first time I led worship. And I thought that would be a real blessing. And I ended up getting so many mean letters like, Nobody introduces eight new songs when they lead worship. He's making it about himself, and then I was deflated, and my pastor encouraged me, like, no, and, and it's good. And I just remember thinking, like, how do you, how do you step out? It's never safe to step out in faith and, to util- and let God utilize you the way that you want. But I think that these are the things. It's like we often want to go, I want to be the guy on stage. I want to be, be the person that does that or this. And instead of actually looking at where has God planted you and how can you be faithful in that place and then allow the spirit the right to dominate and to guide and to direct. Remember what I said, Christianity is not a democracy. It's a dictatorship. (laughs) Jesus is the king and he has absolute authority. The good thing is that he's a really, really good king. And it is only through his absolute sovereign rule over lives that we actually become free anyway. And one of the things God wants to free you from is the need to be free from your situation. (laughs) Isn't that important? Why do you think that Jesus is here to set you free from your current situation? Maybe what he's come to set you free from is your need to be free from that situation. And I think that this is important for us to understand because Stephen is full of grace. And I think that this full of grace, this means that he is is completely, uh, he is reflecting in all of its fullness the reality of God's presence, his goodness. The only other person that the phrase full of grace is utilized for, do you know who it is? Jesus. Why? Two services now. Two people yell out. Jesus is always the safe answer if you don't know the answer on a Sunday service at a Christian church. Just say, if you're like, I don't know, Jesus, you're probably right. Or at least you'll be right on some level. That's the key. But yes, the only other time that this phrase full of grace is utilized is of Jesus in John chapter 1. John chapter 1, verse 14, and the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory. And this is interesting. How have we seen his glory? Glory as of the only son from the father, and then the glory that is seen in Jesus is defined as being full of grace and truth. Remember when I did that message on grace, that grace is probably wrapped up in the singular word, Emmanuel, God is with us, that he is not just a God who is with us, but he is for us. He's not just a God who is with us and for us, but he's a God who has the power to actually change us. He knows us better than we know ourselves. He is present with us and will never leave us nor forsake us, and he has the power to actually transform us. Grace is God's unmerited favor placed upon our lives, that God chooses to love us in our sin. And that God, being a holy God, does not choose to leave us there, but calls us and empowers us by his spirit to live differently. And so when it talks about Stephen being full of grace, it is a direct corresponding passage to Jesus being full of grace. And this is something that is very powerful. When Paul utilizes the phrase, imitate me as I imitate Christ, what he is saying is that if you want to know what Jesus is like, you look at me. And that seems really, really scary. Because not many of us are comfortable saying, imitate me, 
as I imitate Jesus. But I believe that the Christian way should lead us to a place in which we become conduits by, by which the very person of Jesus is seen being illustrated in through our lives. It doesn't mean that we're without sin, but it means that there is a, a dominance of the Holy Spirit that makes Jesus seen in through, through our lives in spite of our brokenness, in spite of our sinfulness. And what is seen in Stephen is not God's unmerited favor being played out, his salvation, because everyone who receives Jesus gets that. But when it says he's full of grace, this is the outflow of that favor that Stephen has received from God being given to others. In fact, it probably corresponds more to God's own proclamation of himself to Moses when he hides Moses in the cleft of the rock and he declares his glory by saying who he is. And he says, the Lord, the Lord, your God. And what does he, what does he refer to himself? Full of loving kindness. What Stephen was a reflection of was God's total and absolute indiscriminate love for all people. It doesn't mean that God approves of sin. It doesn't mean that everybody ends up in the same place. What it means is that God so loved the world that he gave. And Stephen became a reflection of that incredible love. He was full of grace. He, he gave people love, even those who didn't deserve it. He became a conduit by which the love of Jesus not only compelled him into the world, but actually flowed through him and touched the world. And that full of grace is followed up by this. He is full of grace and power. And that word power is a Greek word, dynamos, which is where we get the word dynamite. And I think that this is one of those realities. This is the thing that I thought was so profound about David Foster Wallace's novel is, is that he explores the, the incredible boredom of existence, the, the tediousness of daily... He, he, he does it through the eyes of IRS workers who are having to look at tax files all day long and just how they can't even bear their existence and, and how it's just this, this numbing work that leads to a barely alive reality. And Wallace himself was wrestling through his own despair and his own depression, so much so that after nine years of working on that novel, he hung himself. And he was a genius. He's an absolute genius. He saw the problem of life being lived with self at the center, but he never found the solution to it. And I think one of the things that is so powerful about Stephen is Stephen shows us the upside down realities of the kingdom is that when we lay down our lives and say, not my will be done, but thy will be done, and we give the, the right to the Spirit to lead and to dominate our personalities. We don't lose ourselves. We actually discover who we're intended to be only as we give ourselves to Christ and we give ourselves away to others. And what happens is that he is marked by not only grace, that incredible loving kindness of Christ being, being evidenced in and through his life toward everyone he comes in contact with, but he's also marked by power, the energizing reality of the Holy Spirit. And that power for him, it followed, he says he was doing great wonders and signs among the people. So he was functioning in the ways, the unique ways that the apostles were. He's bringing healing. He's probably casting out demons. He is even, as we'll see, the ability to articulate with great wisdom the gospel, which is why he was ultimately arrested and put to death. But I think that this is important for us because what I want us to be is a people that are full of grace and power. I want us to be energized by the Spirit of God. I was thinking about people who live with that incredible dynamism. Uh, and it's not just natural charisma. Uh, 
I do believe that some people are blessed like Luis Palau with what I call the X factor, but it's a spirit-infused charisma that gives him incredible favor with everyone. You know, Luis Palau is a great evangelist, a dear friend. He lives here uh, in Portland, and he has stage four cancer right now. You know, he's, he's been preaching the gospel for something like 70 years. Uh, and he's 80, like he got saved at like 16, I think, or something like that. Uh, and he basically just started preaching the gospel uh, and, and, and has never stopped. And we just had a pastor's dinner and, we, and it was so moving. He's like, I want, I want you to pray for me the, um, the prayer of Hezekiah, that, you, that God gives me 10 more years. Uh, and he, his, the news that we got back was not the news that we wanted to hear. But Luis, even with this news that he has, he has stage four cancer, uh, and even as he starts treatment, and, and a man in his, in his 80s, he's still planning on doing this massive uh, evangelistic event in, uh, in Bogota, Colombia in August. He's doing another big event, in the, I think, in the fall in Michigan. He's like, I'm just going to go until the Lord takes me home. And that kind of energy, I think of John Wesley, who died at 85 years old, and they said that when he died, his eyes were just as bright as when he was a young man. It sounds like Caleb, who asked Joshua to give him the mountain. He's like at 85, and he says, I still have all the strength that I had in my youth. But I think that this, this is that, spiritual, that supernatural power to be able to live beyond what is normative, because Jesus is so good, I can't rest until everybody hears about him, until everybody meets him that I'm going to pour, have my life poured out. And I think that, that this is an incredible, uh, an incredible call upon our lives, is that I want us to be an energized people. I was thinking of an, another friend, uh, Max Stiles, who uh, was supposed to be retiring from, uh, he pioneered uh, student ventures in the Middle East and has been in Dubai doing all this incredible work. Uh, and just he's led hundreds and hundreds of people to the Lord and discipled them and has turned out pastoral pastoral leaders and he gave up his uh his place in dubai and i thought he was going to come back to the states and just do circuit speaking no he decides that as a man in in the years of retirement that the best thing to do is to start a church in northern iraq uh which he's which he's taken on and it's just it's just like the energy the energy level even when he's come and visited us at door of hope i remember he spoke once and it took me almost an hour and a half to get him out from like long after the service was done because he has so much energy and so not aware of his own needs that all he cared about was making sure that he had the opportunity to connect with every person that he could on the way out the door. And I just am inspired by that kind of... John Wesley died at 85, but here's what he said. He asked his doctor that year, his doctor said, you need to cut down on the amount of preaching you're doing. And when Wesley died, he was still preaching in the upwards of... Cutting down for him was 12 sermons a week. And I just think of that... Like, you're just tired thinking about that kind of energy, and so am I. But I believe that when we fall radically in love with Jesus and we yield to him and receive into our lives the Holy Spirit, there should be a supernatural empowerment to live. I'm not saying that everyone's going to be an energizer bunny, but I am saying that there should be an excitement, an enthusiasm, something, enthusiasm, something that's compelling about what it is that we say that we believe. Peter, and Stephen was full of grace and power. He was doing great wonders and signs among the, the people. And I would just ask you, as a spirit-filled person, are you spirit-filled and are you full of grace? And do you notice that, that divine power that enables you to be a witness for King Jesus? Because that's not just 
power for the professional. This is a power that is available to every believer as they yield themselves to Jesus' rule. I love this. He's not just full of grace, but we're told in verses 9 through 10 that he's also full of wisdom. Look what happens. And here is the beginning of the opposition. Then some of those who belonged to the synagogue of the freedmen, as it was called, and of the Cyrenians, and of the Alexandrians, and of those from Cilicia and Asia, and these are a group of Jews who uh, maybe had been enslaved, but are from different regions that have come back to Jerusalem. Uh, And it says they rose up and disputed with Stephen. So the message that Stephen was declaring was creating controversy uh, in Jerusalem. So here is a man who is serving the people in his community, serving those who were the least of us, At the same time, God's doing signs and wonders to him. At the same time, he's proclaiming the gospel, and he's even entering into conversation. I think this is important. It says they rose up and disputed with Stephen, and this can be interpreted as that Stephen was entering into debates and arguments. But I think that when 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 we remember that he was full of grace uh, and and power, that power is not the authority to smash someone. But the power that Stephen is able to exercise is the ability to take in the anger and the brokenness of the world and not give it back in, in, in return. The power of Stephen is the ability to proclaim the gospel in spite of the opposition. And I think that it's, that it's important for us to see when it says he rose, uh, they rose up and disputed with Stephen that, uh, that they could not withstand the wisdom and the spirit with which he was speaking that Stephen was able to maintain this fullness of grace to declare and proclaim the person of Jesus, they could not withstand it. That doesn't mean that he was beating them down because it is possible to win an argument and lose lose the soul. And I think that it's important for us to remember that we are called to be witnesses, not lawyers. But it also is important for us to be a people who are saturated in the word of God, entrusting the spirit of truth to guide us and direct us into all truth and to bring to remembrance all that he has said, that we should understand our Bibles, that we should understand the ways of Jesus, that we should be able to give a reason for the hope that was within us. I think that when that, is, when, when that knowledge uh, that comes through taking the time to know Jesus, and I always like to, to differentiate between knowledge for knowledge's sake and relational knowledge, when we get to take the time to get to know Christ through his word, trusting the Spirit's guidance, when that is infused with a genuine love of Christ and a yieldedness to his spirit, it becomes an incredibly effective means of communication. But I have seen plenty of people who know the word well that do not have grace. And that can be quite damaging uh, when it comes to representing the person of Christ, who do not function in love but function in the idea that their understanding of the gospel is just another way to elevate their own egos. You remember the religious leaders that are in the temple understood the Torah quite well and were well-versed in the holy scriptures, but they did not have God. And even as Jesus said, they were full as well, but they were full of hypocrisy. They were full of envy and murder and deceit. And so I think that it is possible to know the truth, but to not walk in wisdom, for wisdom is knowledge appropriately applied. And I always like to say that, that to know a truth, to live it and love it are all of the same thing. You cannot say you know the truth of who Christ is if you do not live it and love it. A Jewish understanding of knowledge it should be infused into a way of actually living. 
And this is super important. In fact, what made them incapable of disputing with Stephen, why they could not withstand his, his wisdom, is because his wisdom was directly connected to his king's very presence in and through his life. They weren't wrestling with Stephen. They were wrestling with Jesus working through Stephen by his spirit. And Jesus is pretty hard to argue with. I think it's important that we remember, I think so often one of the, the common problems within the Christianity today is we spend more time apologizing for our faith than we do actually standing upon its truth. Because it's difficult in an age where truth is truly, uh, it's, it's, it's just relevant. Uh, uh, and I think that this is, uh, this is a deep problem that we're dealing with today. 2 Corinthians 13a uh, it says, For we cannot do anything against the truth, but only for the truth. You cannot actually fight against the truth. And so when we actually stand in the gap upon the truth of who Jesus is, he said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. You will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. When we realize that we actually are bringing forth a message that brings liberation to those who are in bondage, it should transform our confidence. But our confidence will only be in place if we actually believe that the Jesus whom we're talking about is really with us and for us. A calm confidence that as I declare the gospel, that I actually have the whole universe at my back saying yes and amen. T.S. Eliot once said, treason is to do the right thing for the wrong reason. And I think that what we have in Stephen is doing the right thing for the right reason. How often do we utilize truth as a means of bringing someone down rather than as a means of bringing people into the light that they might experience the forgiveness and the grace and the mercy of Jesus? I, have, I know that I have fallen into trappings when I have been challenged or faced opposition as a Christian, where there has been a deep desire in me to humble that person. Uh, and it, that usually doesn't work very well. In fact, it, in fact, I found that the more I allow myself to become frustrated within the flesh, the less articulate I become, and the more I sound like an idiot. But to, in an example of, of standing in the simplicity of the gospel, when I first got saved, I, I worked alongside this atheist um, who was a dear friend of mine, uh, and he... <laughs> We were painters together, and he was not just an atheist, but he was also a self-proclaimed communist, and he loved, to he loved to challenge me on my newfound faith. Every day, it was like a new series of questions, and it would always begin with something like this, so, the ark, and I'm like, I'd always just be like, I haven't even read the whole Bible yet. <laughs> He's like, freshwater tank on that boat? I'm like, I don't know, man. <laughs> and then, and then, you know, God's really good. Well, why did he do this? And he'd like, and he actually had, in some cases, you know, it was like secondhand knowledge. Like he hadn't read the Bible, but he had read critics of the Bible and they would utilize particular arguments to paint God as this, as this cruel being who couldn't possibly be good and the foolishness of believing the gospel. And he would utilize these little like atheistic arguments. Like he loved Bertrand Russell. So he always loved to quote from uh, Bertrand Russell's Why I'm Not a Christian, which uh, that book actually turns me into wanting to write a book called Why, I'm, Why I Would Not Be a Reader if this was all that was available, because uh, it's so dry and boring, even though it's brilliant. <laughs> um, but I, I, he would just 
corner me on these things, and I figured it out one day that I should never take his bait. And that the way to shut him up every time, every single time, was be, I'd be like, man, Dan, that's a great question. And I actually don't have the answer uh, to that question. I have no idea how they put freshwater fish on that boat. Uh, but all I know is that Jesus really loves you. And he'd be like, <laughs> like that's so lame. <laughs> but there was something about it that I could tell it kind of moved him because there's power in the name of Christ. I'm trusting in the Holy Spirit. And the one thing I knew for sure was my own personal testimony. And I knew the gospel enough to know that Jesus still loved him, even though he's asking me really lame questions every day. And I think that this is the, this is the key to functioning in wisdom does not mean that we all of a sudden, when we pray that God gives us wisdom, doesn't mean that he's going to increase your IQ or give you all of a sudden some super... In, intellect. But what it does mean is that he will bring illumination. And that illumination actually transforms the way that we're able to interact and to converse with you. God wants to utilize you as he made you to be to bring his gospel forth. The illumination of the Holy Spirit does not turn you into someone else. There's only one Jim Elliott. There's only one Dietrich Bonhoeffer. There's only one Josh White. And thank God, because the world would be a horrible place if there was more of me. Uh, All of us are unique to God's story, and all of you have a part to play in that, and what God wants to help you discover is who he intended you to be as you yield to his spirit. I want you to be full of grace and power. I want you to be full of wisdom, because what happens when we experience real conflict? Because look look here what it says in 11 through 14. Then they secretly instigated men who said, we have heard him speak blasphemous words against Moses and God. So what they're accusing him of is saying that he is speaking against the Torah. And what he was probably preaching was the gospel, that Jesus is the fulfillment of the Torah. And so they are attacking, uh, it's very, very similar uh, to the same attacks that were brought against Jesus in Matthew 26 and in Mark 14, verse 58, and in John chapter 2, verses 19 through 21. You see again and again uh, that the religious leaders within Jerusalem were constantly trying to corner Jesus as well as his disciples in the things that they said. When Jesus said, never, he said, I didn't come to destroy the law of the prophets, I came to fulfill them. But to say that he was the fulfillment of them for them was, was blasphemy against them. And then it, I like that it says they secretly instigated men. So this is done in secret. It's not done in the open. They're trying to bring down this man who is doing one, signs and wonders, who is serving the broken and the hurting, who's preaching beautifully the gospel of peace. And they have to secretly instigate people against him. And this is, then they stirred up the people. So then they actually create a crowd um, saying false things about, about Stephen. And the elders and the scribes, and they came upon him and they seized him and they brought him before the council. See how similar it is to the arrest of Jesus? And they set up, and this is, this is true uh, of what happened to Jesus, they set up false witnesses who said, this man never ceases to speak words against this holy place and the law. So once again, they're accusing him of speaking against the temple. For the Jews, the temple was a sacred place of God's very presence Uh, It was established by Yahweh with Moses for the Jewish people. And now this man saying the very same thing that Jesus uh, Jesus said, if you tear down this temple, uh, you will see it raised again in three days, speaking not of the building, but of his own building. And you remember for Christians, they were looked upon with a big question mark by the surrounding society because even for the Romans, as well as the Jews, temple worship was the place where where you connected with the gods. Now the Christians are saying, 
We are, as the people, the very temple of the living God. His spirit comes to dwell within us. We are the one who tabernacle. Uh, uh, God's spirit tabernacles within us as the very vehicle by which the presence of God is known. And so you could see how they could utilize that kind of preaching um, against Stephen uh, to bring forth his death. He never ceases to speak words against this holy place in the law, for we have heard him say that Jesus of Nazareth will destroy this place and will change the customs that Moses delivered to us. And so here you have the fullness of hypocrisy. They are full as well. And here's what I want you guys to understand uh, is that it's easy for us to read a story like this, and I, I, I brought this up as well when we were going through the Gospel of Matthew. We want to, as Christians, identify ourselves with the good guys in the story. We want to identify with Stephen. But what's frustrating for me when I'm really honest with myself is that I can see the fullness of hypocrisy being played out in my life uh, often in ways that I, I'm like, I want to be full of grace and power but why is it that I allow uh, myself to be full of myself? Why do I allow that fullness of self-preservation to play out so in such ugly ways in and through my life? And so I think it's important when we read these people that came against Stephen that we can see ourselves within their story, within their narrative. Matthew 23, 28, you remember what Jesus said to the religious leaders? He says, oh, woe to you, Pharisees and scribes, so you also outwardly appear righteous to others. Man, sounds like the church. But within you are full of hypocrisy and lawlessness. I think again of Romans chapter 1, uh, verse 29, when Paul is defining the wrath of God being revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of those who suppress the truth and unrighteousness. And he describes the wrath of God giving people over to just do what they want because what is sin? Sin is a rebellion against God's rule. And so the wrath of God is that God, fine, you just have it your way. Go live however you want. Live a life of self-preservation and what you'll discover is nothing but despair and heartbreak in the end. And at the very end of Romans chapter one, verse 29, that picture of being filled is used once again. They were filled with all manner of unrighteousness, evil, covetousness, malice. They are full our word in our text of envy, murder, strife, deceit, maliciousness. They are gossips. What I hate about that text is I'm like, oh, I'm not a murderer. And Jesus said, if you hate your brother or angry at your brother without cause, you are. I'm like, oh, envy, dang it, strife. Much of my life is strife. Covetousness. How often do I look at other people's lives and wish I had what they had? Unrighteousness. How often am I not like Jesus? That's sort of a broad word. It really kind of encompasses everything, doesn't it? Uh, evil. Well, I'm not evil, like compared to horror movie evil, but uh, Jesus said even to his followers, you being evil know how to get good gifts to your children. Dang it, can't escape that. Deceit. And, and that's, not even the, that's not even a full list. And I don't think even the whole list found in Romans is a full list. And the bottom line is that what we need is to recognize that sin is not something we can escape, but there is something that we can do with it quickly. Martin Luther had a famous statement that I always found confusing, and it kind of came into clarity as I was preparing this message. And the statement is this, sin bravely and honestly. What does he mean by that? It's a weird statement. Sin bravely and honestly? Is Martin Luther, was he encouraging people to go out and sin? Should we sin that grace may abound? That's not what he's encouraging. What he is saying is that you can't escape sin, 
and what we need as sinners who have been saved by grace, called to be saints, is we need the courage and the honesty to come into the light and deal with it. That's what he's saying. And what I would encourage you as we read the story, this story before us is what, when you find within your own life this idea that you present yourself one way when you come to church, but in reality, you are all about yourself still. The opportunity that you have before you is to quickly, and it takes courage to come into the light. It does. Because the light, why did they hate Stephen? Because the light within him revealed the darkness in themselves. And the only thing they could do with that is either confess and repent and follow, his, follow Jesus as he was declaring him, or snuff out the witness. Those were the only options. Because they could not escape his light, so they had to put it away. Because look what it says here at the end. And gazing at him, all who sat in the council saw that his face was like a face of an angel. Face of an angel. I, sadly, that phrase is so beautiful, but it, I'm robbed of its beauty by the fact that our culture has been inundated with really horrible little pictures of naked cherubs. Uh, and so when I, angel's face, I just immediately think of a naked baby with wings because my grandma has tons of those pictures all over her house. Uh, or I think of, of uh, touched by an angel. Once again, not generally, I think. Uh, um, there's another angel show too that was the guy of Pa Engel played an angel. What's that guy's name? <laughs> Little House on the Prairie. I'm totally dating myself right now. Uh, all the millennials are like, I have no idea what you're talking about. All I know is that to try to get your head around, what does it mean that he has a face of an angel? Does it mean he's really attractive? Does it mean that, that he had a nice smile? What does it mean? And when we look at angelic visitations, uh, well, first of all, angel means messenger, uh, which I think is significant as well, because he truly was a messenger. He carried, he stood he, he stood as the, as the messenger for the king. Uh, but angelic visitations are always marked by light, by brightness. Think about the transfiguration. It says that Jesus' robes were transformed into, they were brighter than, than anything that a launderer could make. Illumination, God is light and in him is no darkness at all. And I believe that actually there was a supernatural reality upon Stephen's life. God's very manifest presence. And I think that even as they were attacking him um, around his treatment of, of Moses and the law, God was actually replicating in some way, some supernatural way, the very thing that happened to Moses when Moses stood before God and his glory was, was revealed. What happened? Moses came down from the mountain and his face was aglow with the glory of God. And the people became afraid and they asked him to cover his face until the glory dissipated. And I'd just be curious to know if you think that it's actually appropriate to think that people should actually carry with them light. And have you actually ever met anyone that is full of light? I know people within this room that are full of light. Uh, and I think all of us should be. But I actually have been, I have personally come into contact with people that have a unique manifestation of Christ's presence that I would describe as a supernatural reality around their being. Call it aura, call it spirit. I don't know what you call it, but it's something tangible. In fact, I remember once I went to Russia with a group, of, um, group to share the gospel um, in the city of Tver, uh, which is uh, just east of, um, of Moscow, about an hour. And while we were there, these, these two Russian 
high school girls started following a group of us around, and uh, I had the translator ask them why they were following, and they, I said, why are you following us? And they said, there's so much light around you guys. That was the word they used. I think that's a really beautiful, beautiful picture. And it wasn't me. It, wasn't, it was a group of us representing Jesus in a very dark place where there wasn't much gospel at that time. That was in 2000. It was a really power. I remember it struck me because I wasn't aware of any light coming off of our group. But they saw something literally supernatural. And those girls got saved that week uh, through the preaching of the gospel, uh, which was such a powerful thing. But I think that this is, this is the verse that I think that Jesus speaks to this reality because Stephen was full of light. He wasn't just full of grace. He wasn't just full of wisdom, but he was full of light. Matthew 6, the eye is the lamp of the body. So if your eye is healthy, your whole body will be full of light. What Jesus is essentially saying is whatever captivates you, whatever it is that you spend your time gazing at, whatever it is that you spend your time thinking upon, whatever it is that dominates your existence, that is what will come out of you. And here he's saying, if you look into the face of Christ, looking unto Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith, and you spend a long time gazing at him, it is impossible not to reflect him. And I think that's so powerful. I want to just end uh, with uh, just a quick story. So Darcy and I went away last weekend to Puget Sound, and we were at this cabin. So we've been going there to this place called the Riptide uh, for cash. We started going there the second year of Door of Hope. We went there six years in a row. And then Mary, the woman who built it, is this beautiful mid-century cabin that sits on a bluff looking out over the sound um, on, and to Mount Rainier. And it actually, on the front of the house, it looks out over the sound. It's surrounded by water on both sides because uh, it's on a little jetty. Uh, it looks out across the sound to the Olympic Mountains. Uh, and and we've been, it was like this sacred little retreat place that we went to. It was for, we, I found it. I just typed in mid-century cabin on Puget Sound one year, and it came up. And it was the last year they rented, but we got so close with the family, they gave it to us for free every summer for six years until Mary, the woman who built it in the 50s, died at 95 years old. And her two sons, who were also retired, one a retired Presbyterian minister in California, and Sandy, the guy that we dealt with that lives up in Washington, uh, they just realized that they didn't have the time or the energy to keep up the house. And so they sold it. Darcy and I really wanted to buy it, but I'm a pastor. Um, <laughs> and it's waterfront property. Uh, so we were super bummed. Well, uh, two years later, it went back up on the, the new owners that bought it, put it up on Airbnb. And the kind of the cool thing is that Mary, they sold it. Um, uh, we wanted to keep it exactly as it was. Like the house is so impeccably decorated. Everything that my wife and I love style-wise. So it's like this gorgeous kind of eclectic, bohemian, magical place. Uh, it was surrounded by just beautiful natural greenery uh, and the, the full wall of windows that looks out over the sky. I, I mean, bald eagles every day. I've encounters with red foxes that literally came into the cabin. Magical. I was waiting for it to tick its mouth and talk to me like fantastic Mr. Fox. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> this incredible place. Uh, so it goes back up on the mark on, on Airbnb as, an, as a place. You can rent it on Airbnb. But the couple that bought it, they did a couple things that, um, that they're, they're going to answer to God for, uh, which was primarily a, 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 a gnome explosion uh, through the property, which was really, my wife started crying. So just so you know, in case, I hope that Barb, the owner, doesn't ever listen to this sermon. Uh, but I, I, I took pictures of where all the gnomes were in the backyard and cleared, I denomed 
the yard and stuck them all on the side of the house. And then it took me like two hours to put them all back at the very end of our trip, just so that we wouldn't have to look at all the ceramic garden gnomes. And there's, I can't even tell you how many there were. But anyway, that's not even my story. Uh, so, uh, so I'm I'm taking a nap on Sunday afternoon because I'm on vacation, and uh, uh, and Darcy wakes me up and she said, "Hey, honey." Um, uh, can you go down to the beach? And it was like, it's a long flight of stairs down to the beach because uh, it's a pretty high bluff. Uh, the girls are down there. My, my daughter, Hattie, brought her friend and they were just playing around in the sound. She's like, there's a man down there with a really big dog. And it's very private and secluded, so it's not public. Uh, so I'm like, okay. So I, I get up and I'm all groggy and I walk down the stairs and there, I get down to the bottom and I'm confronted by this eight-month-old giant black and white Great Dane uh, and he's beautiful, but really, really excited. And uh, he's barking, and I, I can see why Darcy was freaked out with the girls down there. The girls were completely oblivious. They were just digging in the sand. And there was this little, this little old man who was, like, dragging a log through the sand, and he puts the log down. Uh, I still actually don't know what he was doing. Uh, and he walks toward me, and I'm not joking. He was, like, out of some weird old photo of, like, a quintessential sailor. He was wearing this cool, like, waxed little Carhartt jacket thing with big front pockets and the little turned-up cap, and he had this perfect little silver beard and really strong lines in his eyes, like really wise. And the only thing that was missing from this guy was a little corncob pipe. And he was like little, like, kind of baggy trousers tucked into big rain boots. And then on top of that, he had this epic accent. Uh, his parents were from Holland, and they escaped uh, when under Nazi rule, uh, to, and actually moved, uh, to, so European descent, moved to Venezuela, and he's been in the States for 25 years, and his name is Valentine. So his name is Val, and he sounds exactly like Luis Palau. I'm not, if you guys have ever heard Luis Palau talk, he's like, you know. <laughs> so there was just, but the reason I tell you this story is because this, this line about Stephen, like, happened to me last week, about his face was like the face of an angel. So this, this man... He, I, I was so bewildered by his presence that I honestly, even today, I can't totally tell you everything that he told me. But all I knew is that I, there was something in my spirit that said, this guy's a Christian. He didn't say anything. There was just something about his presence. He had this incredible smile, this, this musical voice. Uh, he had impeccable taste, <laughs> which any true angel is going to have, in my opinion. Uh, <laughs> and, uh, and even his dog's name, and I this is the funny thing, I can't remember his dog's name, but the name meant full life. Uh, I'm like, who is this guy? Uh, so I, I tell him I'm a pastor, and he goes, uh, he goes you're a pastor? And he goes, he goes, well, the Lord bless you. And then he goes into this whole thing on the Hebrew alphabet. I don't even remember what the context was. And then he starts talking to me about the joy of the Lord and how it's supposed to sustain you and having a spirit of gratitude. And he had the, like he would end all his words with just so much meaning. <laughs> like like, it was like he would sing them out. And I, I tell him, I'm like, yeah, Dar- Darcy and I, we wanted to buy this, this building. He goes, well, you know, Barb, and I don't remember what this, he's like, they're good people. And I'm like, yeah, but do you see what they did to the yard? And I'm like, it's like a gnome explosion up there. And he goes, he goes, yeah, but he's like, he goes, you know, some people do silly things like put markings on their bodies, but the Lord still loves them. 
<laughs> and I was like, are you serious? Did you just compare my tattoos to the garden gnomes? <laughs> so, so he goes on and on, and I told him we wanted to buy the, the house, and he goes, but no, you can't buy the house. God has a mission for you in Portland to bring the good news of the gospel. It's about Jesus. It's about the Lord. And he just kept saying, like, he goes, the Ten Commandments, they're beautiful now because we have the gospel. He's like, they're easy to keep because we have the gospel. And I'm like, you got to, my wife needs to meet you. You got to come upstairs. So I brought him up with me. And Darcy's sitting by the fire and it's pitch dark now. And Darcy gets up and then he starts talking to Darcy. And literally, my wife's crying within two minutes of meeting this guy. She's just like, who is this guy? And, and he starts telling us about, I don't even remember, I just remember him singing to us at one point. He's, he kept singing, he's got the whole world in his hands. And I was like, why is that so precious? <laughs> and then this is the best part. So after he talks to us about needing to stay true to our mission, and he's just got this radiance and this, pre- that was the thing. I think I was so struck by the presence of Jesus that what he was saying wasn't even sticking with me. I just wanted to be near him. I wanted to know him. I, wanted, I'm like, I was like obsessed with, like, I, got to, I have to get to know this guy. And as he's literally, he backs, he goes, he goes well, I should be going. And he, like, he backs out. The, so we're sitting in front of a fire, so the fire is like lighting his face. And he backs up into the pitch black. And he goes, and his voice starts coming. We can see him faintly. And he goes, you know, my friends always say, where's the proof of the, of the resurrection? And I say, if Jesus rose from the dead, that's good enough for me. And then he backs up, he backs up another step, and then he's completely in darkness. And then all we hear is, if Jesus rose from the dead, that's good enough for me. And he was gone. And I told Darcy, I'm like, that dude was an angel. I am absolutely positive that he does not exist. I still, we argued about it all the way on. She's like, no, he's, he knew the name of the new owners. I'm like, I don't care. He's either a ghost, like we're going to go to that house and he's going to have been dead for 10 years and the Lord sent him to encourage us, or he's an angel. And, she's like, and Hattie goes, well, I saw the dog go to the bathroom. I don't think angels do that. And I'm like, I'm like Jesus ate food. I'm just saying, I think that he's an angel. Um, and, and I found out the other day that he really does live down the street. So I was a little disappointed because I was convinced. My point in that is to say that one of the most compelling... Com- components of his testimony, that face like an angel, is that there is something about him that made me want to engage in conversations about faith because he had a supernatural, natural reality to him. What made him so compelling wasn't the things that he said, but it was, it was the evidence that the Jesus he talked about was a Jesus that he knew. You guys, I believe that, that Val is the... I don't even know what church he goes to, how orthodox he is in his understanding of Scripture. I just know that everything he said was about the goodness of Jesus and the gift of life and the importance of gratitude and the importance of clinging to the gospel with all that's in us. This is what it means to be full of the Spirit. I want you to be full of the Spirit. I want you to be full of grace and power, dynamo. I want you to be full of wisdom, Not knowledge for knowledge's sake, but personal knowledge of Jesus. And I want you to be full of light. Amen?